So most folks know the story of the 10 plagues. That's, you know, something that's kind of out there in the general consciousness. Um, And if you ask, ask them what Pharaoh's error was, they'll almost all say he wouldn't let God's people go. And that's true, but it's only a symptom of the actual problem. The real issue, the root of the problem, is Pharaoh considered himself equal to or above God. Pharaoh feels like he has the right to define right and wrong, to define justice, to treat people in whatever way suits his own purposes. And this attitude is at the core of the struggle we saw last week, the struggle between the gods of Egypt and Yahweh. In our breakout sessions, we saw how focused God is on people, all people, knowing that he is God. He keeps saying over and over, I am doing these miraculous things, so you will know that I am God. I am the Lord. Always read that phrase with an emphasis on the I. I am the Lord, as opposed to you or these other gods you worship. I am the Lord. And that statement is followed with things like, I will bless you and provide for you and fill you with all good things. Following other gods made people completely miss the blessings God was standing there offering to them. It was making them lust after the counterfeit, the shiny things, rather than the good gifts God had in store for them. We've come to the 10th plague the killing of all the firstborn of Egypt. It starts in chapter 12 of Exodus. Up to now, every single plague was intended to give Pharaoh a chance to humble himself, to acknowledge God, and to let God's people go. Pharaoh, like the cat of nine lives, has wasted all nine of his warnings. Although the writer of Exodus calls the killing of the firstborn a plague, This one is actually different. It's not a plague like the others. If you followed up from the breakout session last week and went and circled all of the I am the Lord statements in your Bible, you'll be able to see at a glance what the key statement is in this whole section of scripture. You can just look down at the page and see the circle. It's in chapter 12, verse 12. God says he's about to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. See how important it is to use the tools in your backpack? They help you quickly focus on the key points in a passage. We're about to see God execute judgment on the gods of Egypt, who have not only been oppressing his people, they've been seducing his people. And honestly, it's a lot like a situation of domestic abuse. The Israelites behave exactly like someone who has a long history of being abused by an intimate partner. They're in love with Egypt and Egypt's gods, even though they are being horribly mistreated and abused. We are at the point in the relationship where God is entering in power to rescue them. The Lord tells them through Moses that what's about to happen is momentous. I can't really overstate what a big, big deal this moment is for God and his people. In fact, this lunar month is to be the first month of their year from now on. That's how big of a deal this is to God. This is their birthday. 
This is the birth of a nation. This is the beginning. Life is being snatched from the jaws of death. God has shown up to do whatever it takes to rescue his people. The time is now. Even the exact day matters to God. On the 10th day of the month, they're to set aside one young goat or lamb for slaughter, one per household. Each animal must be a male yearling that is unblemished. That word means complete, whole, innocent, perfect. This is the first time we've seen any reference in the Bible to the specifics of an animal that is to be sacrificed. But you can see that the idea is to give of your very best. This is the animal you prize. This is the animal with its whole life ahead of it. This is the animal you want to build your herd from. And this is the animal you're giving to God. From the evening of the 10th day, the animal is to be watched protected, and guarded until the evening of the 14th day. No explanation is given for the wait. Is it so that Israelites develop an attachment to the young animal so they have time to realize that this lamb or goat is a symbol of themselves, of how perfect and precious and unblemished and holy they are in God's sight, and that they belong to God? Or perhaps God is trying to give Pharaoh a little more time to repent. Perhaps this something's happening in Egypt that requires the wait. The Israelites certainly understood this four-day period to be a one-time command. It didn't become part of the ceremony in future years of the observation of Passover. From here on out, Passover would always begin on the 14th day, not the 10th. At the twilight of the 14th day, the Israelites slaughter the animals, being careful not to break any bones. Following God's instructions, they use twigs of hyssop to dip in the blood and splash it on the sides and tops of their doorposts. Most people think this is some sort of magic sign to ward God off so he won't kill any of their firstborn. But look at chapter 12, verse 13, right after the key, I am the Lord statement. Once again, our backpack tool serves as a text highlighter to focus us on what's important. God says the blood on the doorposts is a sign for the Israelites, not God. God knows where they are. This is a sign for them, one they can touch and see. It links the holiness of the sacrifice to their own dwellings where they are. It's a reassurance and it is a remembrance. The blood is a visual sign of innocence and worth. Those animals were innocent, unblemished, perfect, and valuable. And it was worth it to God to sacrifice them for the sake of his people. God's people are valuable. This is how God sees them. This is how God wants them to see themselves. Each household roasts their animal whole, all of it, still taking care not to break any bones. The Lord is quite specific that the animal is to be eaten completely up, and all leftovers, including the carcass, are to be burned to ashes. As the animal roasts, they pack hastily and put on their traveling clothes. Then, standing around the table, they gobble the meat along with scraps of quick bread, bread that is flat since there's been no time for it to rise. 
This would be bread like our tortillas, something you can wrap the meat in and eat on the run. For some reason, the flat bread is also a big deal to the Lord. I guess it's another tactile symbol of the urgency with which God is acting. A reminder that God shows up on time, right when you need him. God tells them that in future years, when they celebrate this day, they're to eat bread without yeast from the 14th day to the 21st day, a whole week after the Passover day. In fact, they're to clean out all the yeast out of their homes for the Passover celebration, and anyone who eats anything with yeast in it is to be cut off, excluded from the community during this period. This exclusion being, quote, cut off is a typical consequence the Lord establishes for the Israelites, and it's fraught with meaning. For one thing, it's the exact same word used when Zipporah cut off her son's foreskin back in Exodus 4, the physical act that marks the Israelites as belonging to God. See how the imagery is all bound up with holiness and being set apart to God? God's trying to get the message through to the Israelites by layering it verbally, visually, tactually. In its mildest form, being cut off from the community is very practical, nonviolent sort of consequence for a misdeed or an error. It's kind of like time out, like parents use with little kids to help them understand the negative consequences of their behavior. And it can range from minor to very serious, depending on its length and severity. In our own modern culture, a short time out may be appropriate for a small child. Giving a spouse the silent treatment is a step up and is a sign of extreme displeasure. Being put in solitary confinement, however, is one of the worst punishments we meet out to serious offenders even today. Being excluded from a community permanently is a tremendous penalty with serious repercussions. At its most extreme, being cut off is actually a form of violence. It's not physically life-threatening, but it is mentally and emotionally life-threatening. Being cut off from the most important annual celebration would be a reasonable consequence of taking it lightly. Eating leaven during a Passover would be knowingly disrespecting God. In the final analysis, the focused on yeast is another layer of messaging. This time it's one you can taste, one you can actually ingest. Not having yeast around for a week is intended to remind us of the haste with which the Passover meal was prepared. God is here to rescue you. The time is now. As midnight falls, all their preparations are complete. The kitchen utensils are packed and stowed for the trip. All is in readiness. As the Israelites huddle inside their homes, Yahweh passes through Egypt with the destroyer. There's no explanation as to who or what the destroyer is, but it is, in the Hebrew, one who corrupts, destroys, ruins, and lays waste. It is not the same word as death. Remember, this is God executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. These gods are being destroyed, ruined, and laid waste. So why must the firstborn sons and animals of Egypt die? 
Well, as you remember, it has to be an event of such severity that Pharaoh will be absolutely forced to let the Israelites go. You can think of our own civil war. What did it take for us in the South to set our slaves free? Not studying the Bible, that was twisted into providing justification for slavery. Not being good-hearted people, you know there were good people who still justified slavery in their minds. Not laws, laws can be influenced and changed. No, it took the death of our sons to bring us to our knees and force us into freeing our slaves. We'll look at the significance of the firstborn a little closer when we go into our breakout sessions. Forever after this, the Lord says, all the firstborn of Israel, whether of human or of animal, all the firstborn belong to me. Every firstborn of every animal is to be sacrificed as a gift being given back to God, except for donkeys. <laughs> Instead, sacrifice a lamb in place of a firstborn donkey. I don't know why. I guess maybe donkeys were scarce and needed to be kept in service as beasts of burden. Who knows? But also notice that all means all males. Remember, this is an extremely patriarchal society. Males stand in for and represent the females, just as they often do today, even in our language around God. Be aware that this is a cultural overlay and should not be construed as implying God values females less. God is simply meeting people where they are in the moment within their existing culture. God continues, from now on, a gift is to be given to God in place of all firstborn sons. Remember to commemorate this day forevermore, even after you're settled in the good land I'm giving you. Reenact this Passover and celebrate it for seven days every year so you will remember it and so you will have a chance to explain it to your children so they will remember it. The celebration will be like having a sign on your arm and a reminder right between your eyes. It needs to remain front and center in your memory that Yahweh rescued you from Egypt with a mighty hand. This is the first time in scripture we hear this colorful phrase about the armbands and the reminder right between your eyes. Remember it, it'll come up again at another super important place in Israel's relationship with God. Well, Pharaoh and all his court and all the Egyptians get up in the middle of the night and wail, for there is not a single house in all of Egypt without someone dead. And Pharaoh immediately summons Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night and tells them, get up, get out of here. Take everything, your people, your flocks, your herds, whatever, get out of here and leave your blessing on me, which I presume means he's asking them to make sure the plague will stop when they leave. So the Israelites begin to move out, taking the bones of Joseph with them as they had promised all 400 years ago. There are, it says, 600,000 men, all armed, and countless women and children and livestock, something like a million people. Everyone in Egypt urges them to go, even as they are burying their dead sons and livestock. They're terrified that if the Israelites stay, more people will die. Historians and archaeologists can find no evidence of such a massive exodus of people. Have the numbers grown in the telling? Perhaps, 
ancient writers are notorious for emphasizing important events by exaggerating numbers. Don't let that bother you. That's not the point of the story. Remember that the important thing is what the story is telling you about God. As you remember, Pharaoh's northern palace is in Avarice, and the Israelite slaves are building the great city of Ramses right at Avarice. The Lord has reiterated that Canaan is the promised land, and there's a direct route from Ramses to Canaan. You already know it. It's that coastal highway that runs right through the land of the Philistines. The problem is that road is very heavily fortified. That's the central major trade route, the lifeblood of Egypt, and the Egyptians have built forts all along this road. God literally says to himself, hmm, I better not take them that way. If they see armed enemies, they'll get scared and turn back to Egypt. So instead, the Lord leads the people around by the desert road that goes towards the Reed Sea. If your Bible says Red Sea, that is a blatant mistranslation. The Hebrew word means reed, rushes, or water plants. Like we saw in an important word last week, the change to red happened when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek about 150 years before Christ. No one knows why they changed it. It's just wrong. The Hebrew says sea of reeds or sea of water plants. So we have no idea where the sea of reeds is or was. We can only try to triangulate it using what little we do know. According to Numbers 33, they left from the city of Ramses and made their first camp at Succoth. Do you remember that name? We first saw it in the story of Jacob, and I told you that whenever the people of God escape from a significant and dangerous situation, they will first camp at a place called Succoth. This is a different Succoth, but the meaning is the same. It's a word that means sheds a place of temporary respite, a place to catch your breath. Remember that place name, it'll come up again. After that, they make it to a place called Etham. We have no idea where these places are, but they would have not been very far from Ramses. You can't move a million people quickly on foot, especially if you're dragging children, the elderly, and all your livestock. They're somewhere near the edge of the desert. So how do you keep one million people all heading in the right direction? They don't have walkie-talkies or even a map. Well, God himself is leading them. During the day, he's a pillar of cloud up ahead. And at night, he's a pillar of fire. They can always see that. When he stops for the night, that's when they stop in camp. And when he starts moving in the morning, that's when they break camp and move on. On the third day, God does something weird. He starts moving back towards Egypt. It says they'd already gotten to the edge of the desert, so they're somewhere near where the green of the Nile Delta meets the white of the desert. But he brings them back around, so they've got their back to the shore of the Reed Sea. Can you imagine the consternation of the people? Pharaoh, who has spies out watching them, figures they've gotten completely lost and are wandering around in circles. We have no idea where the Reed Sea is. 
Given the existing geography, it's likely either some part of Lake Mansala, which is a shallow marshy lake in northern Egypt, or possibly they're backed up against what we now call the Great Bitter Lake. I agree with scholars who think it's more likely to be Lake Mansala, since it is brackish and full of water plants, whereas the Great Bitter Lake is saltwater, and water plants don't grow in saltwater. Also, I think if they'd gotten as far as the Great Bitter Lake, they'd be on the eastern side of it, not the western side. Plus, they'd have an awful long way to get back. But we don't know. I've put uh, some really cool stuff in your study guide um, on some interesting scientific tests, as well as some historical accounts of other armies getting stuck in marshy waters in northern Egypt. And it doesn't really matter. The point is they had their back to some large body, body of water. Pharaoh at his court, seeing them vulnerable and feeling the impact of the entire slave workforce being gone, decide to go after them and bring them back. When the Israelites see Pharaoh's horses and chariots and troops marching towards them, they panic and turn on Moses in fright and anger. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? What have you done? We told you to leave us alone. It would have been better for us to remain slaves to the Egyptians than to die in the desert. This is a normal reaction from someone who has been abused. They simply have no emotional reserve to face any adversity at all, especially when they see their abuser coming. They panic. And Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I love the ancient hieroglyph for that word, deliverance or salvation. It's an eye with two teeth. It has the connotation of a destroyer watching or a shepherd fiercely watching his flock to protect them from predators. They've got their back against a large body of water. Pharaoh and his army are bearing down on them. They're trapped. But no, that's only what it looks like to them. God has not maneuvered them here to trap them. He's maneuvered them here to protect their back. Now the Egyptians only have access to them from one side. Never give up on God, even when it looks as if God is making things worse. Always, always trust in God's goodness and love towards you. Even if bad things happen, like when the Hebrew foreman got beaten, God is there and is going to bring you out of the troubles. Trust God. And trust God's desire to bless you, feed you, and heal you. On the inside, Moses is scared too. And the Lord tells him to stop whining and put his big girl panties on. I might be paraphrasing a little there. Moses has got to show the Israelites how to trust God. God says to tell the Israelites to start moving forward towards the sea. Moses is to hold out his hand and the waters of the sea will part and the Israelites will go through on dry ground, but the Egyptians who are chasing them will perish. 
God doesn't tell Moses how exactly they'll perish. Moses' role now, up to this point and in the future, the main thing Moses is supposed to do is physically demonstrate to the people how to trust God in every single situation. And Moses does it. He trusts God and he lifts his hand out over the Reed Sea. At this point, the angel of God moves from in front of the people to stand behind the people, between them and the Egyptian army. This is in Exodus 14, 19. I want you to notice something about this verse. It says that the pillar of cloud also moved from the front of them to stand at the back. It's just like what we saw in chapter 12, where Yahweh went through Egypt with the destroyer. Here it says the angel of the Lord moves and the pillar moves. Yahweh is here in visible form. Remember, that's what angel of the Lord always means. But the angel of the Lord is in addition to the pillar of cloud. I love pondering this. Did the angel of God look like an important man like he always did in Genesis? Is this how God was speaking to Moses or how Moses could see him? The pillar of cloud is their guide and now their protection. The division between the people of God and the forces that would harm them. And the next verse says, throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. It was both a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire at the same time. I wonder, for the second time in this story, if this cloud is Jesus acting in his role as Redeemer. Is the fiery pillar of fire the Holy Spirit? I think the answer is yes to all of the above. The Trinity is here in this seminal moment in Israel's history. All night, as the angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud and fire stand between the Israelites and the Egyptians, an east wind blows. The waters of the sea pile up, leaving a dry path right down the middle. In the morning, the Israelites march through the sea with water piled on their left and their right, and the Egyptian army following as close as they can, given that pillar of cloud and fire standing between them and the Israelites. At around six in the morning, as they come up out of the seabed, the Lord looks down from the pillar of cloud and of fire and jams the wheels of the Egyptian chariots. Their army is thrown into confusion. They start shouting, retreat, retreat. The God of the Israelites is fighting for them. And God tells Moses, now stretch your hand out over the sea. And the waters of the Reed Sea come rushing back, drowning the entire Egyptian army. And when the Israelites see the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people are in awe of the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Your Bible may say they feared the Lord, but when you see that sort of translation, you need to substitute in awe of. It's that sort of, quote, fear. It's recognition of the immense power and holiness of God. It's the knowledge of how small we are compared to God. And oh my, what a celebration the Israelites have now. If you haven't already, you need to read the Song of Moses in chapter 15. It so wonderfully captures the jubilation and the awe and the sense of blessing and wonder. It's a passage to read and reread. 
whenever you're, you find yourself, as little children say, forgetting what God looks like. Be sure to notice in verse 20 that Miriam also leads the celebration. She's identified here as a prophet. She is a big deal. It's the three of them, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam, who are the leaders of Israel. Aaron and Moses get all the press and attention, but Miriam is just as much of a leader. We know that from this passage here, but also from an incident we'll get to in the book of Numbers, where Miriam leads a power play against Moses. When this happens, she's cut off from the community for seven days, but the entire community sits right where they are, not moving on until she can come back in. That's how big of a deal she is. And we also have it directly from the mouth of the Lord. It's in Micah 6, 4. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. Even in such a strongly biased and patriarchal society, their strong women leaders are still recognized and given honor in both the written record and in the words of the Lord. From here, the Lord leads the people into the desert of Shur. The city of Shur is believed to have been near the Egyptian coast in the far northeastern corner of Egypt. We think it was named after the defensive wall the Egyptians built there. The word Shur means wall. Shur is where Hagar was heading when she was pregnant and ran away from Sarai. It had to have been in the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula. Alone and pregnant and with few supplies, she would have been heading across the northern part of the peninsula by the most direct route. This is where the Israelites are, still in the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, heading south into the desert. Then the wheels start to fall off the wagon. They go three days in the desert without finding any water at all. They're well on their way to perishing, all million of them. Not good. Finally, they find some water, and it turns out to be bitter. Not meaning it tasted bad, meaning it was poisonous. The people begin to turn on Moses a second time. The Lord shows Moses a branch nearby and tells him to throw it in the water. And when he does, the water is purified and the people drink. Moses uses the incident as an object lesson. If you've been circling those important I am the Lord statements, you'll see one here marking this as an important statement. He tells the people, see, if you're careful to do whatever the Lord tells you, no matter what it is, none of the awful diseases that fell on the Egyptians will happen to you, for I am the Lord who heals you. He's saying, I'm not going to leave you to die of thirst. I'm not going to give you poisoned water to drink. I'm here to heal you, not to kill you. And God leads them to an oasis surrounded by date palms. By this time, Moses can see they're heading down towards Mount Sinai. He knows this route. They've been dragging through the wilderness for about six weeks now, and scrabbling for food and water has become their sole focus. Can you imagine trying to feed a million people in the desert? That's another reason scholars think the numbers might be exaggerated. I'm sure to Moses it felt like a million people, though. The people have eaten every last scrap, and they're grumbling. Some translations say murmuring, an ominous sound. You can totally imagine running through a large crowd on the brink of riot. They start complaining to Moses. 
if you brought us out here to starve to death, you might as well have left us in Egypt. At least we would have had meat and water while we died. Whew. I guess the Lord has already faded in their memory. And that's the opposite of what the Lord wants to happen. What a people he's chosen for himself. They are a handful. But the Lord treats them gently. He knows they've been abused. Moses reminds them, hey, it wasn't me who brought you out of Egypt. It was Yahweh. And he sends Aaron to gather all the people together. And when they've all gathered, the pillar of cloud appears before them and they can see the glory of the Lord in the cloud. And God tells Moses to tell the people, I've heard your grumbling. I will provide food, meat tonight and bread in the morning. So you'll know, you guessed it, that I am the Lord. This is another highlighted incident. God will provide. God will always provide. He's trying to teach his people this slowly, gently, layer by layer. So God sends quail that evening for the people to, to eat. And the next morning, there's this really weird dew on the ground. And as it dries, it leaves these white flakes. Moses tells each person to gather enough to eat for one day, no more and no less. So they did. And it tasted great, like crackers with honey. And the folks who gathered too much and hid it away found it was spoiled and full of maggots the next day. Moses was so ticked off with them for not trusting the Lord and not doing exactly what the Lord said. They still don't get it. They don't understand how trustworthy the Lord is and also how dangerous the Lord is. He is a God. On the sixth day, Moses told them, tomorrow we're to rest. So today, gather enough for two days. I promise it won't spoil overnight. And sure enough, it didn't. But yet again, some people don't listen. They don't gather a double portion. And when they go out to look for food the next morning, there isn't any. Again, Moses is beside himself with irritation. Why can't they believe? Why can't they just do what the Lord says? Why do they insist on hoarding control for themselves? God is now in a power struggle with the people. Yay, time for our breakout sessions. No matter how you look at it, the 10th plague is a difficult event to understand. There are two human perspectives, that of the Israelites who are being rescued and that of the Egyptians whose firstborn sons and livestock are being killed. We're going to dig a little deeper into this in our breakout sessions. The first thing to remember is Exodus 12, 12, where God specifically says the purpose is to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. Keep that in mind as you work through the questions. All righty, turn your, turn your mics back on and tell me what you came up with out there. The questions all had to do with why the firstborn? What did the firstborn represent? Why, why would killing the firstborn be um, a judgment on the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh? Um, and uh, why then at the end would the Lord say that the firstborn of the Israelites belong to him? from now on forever? What, what, how are those linked and what is the significance of that? I think in the, you know, as most of the time as we go through the 
the Exodus story, people just think it's just the death of the sons. That's it. That's, that was all there was to it. But I think there might be a whole lot deeper layers here. What did you guys come up with? We talked about the fact that it, it seems like, um, again, women were discounted and it seems like the, the firstborn son represented uh, a man's uh, passage to eternal life in a sense. You know, your, your, your legacy, if you want to call it that, was going to continue even after you yourself had died. That makes a ton of sense. So hugely important. Yeah, did you, um, were you able to relate that to some of what we seen, we saw like in the Abraham um, blessings, uh, what the greatest blessing and the greatest curse is in that culture for a man? Well, the greatest blessing, I mean, we went back and looked at, at um, the, the uh, Genesis 49.3, um, where Jacob is, is speaking to Reuben, um, and it's um, talking about how Reuben is, is his firstborn and is, you know, the, 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 the strength of his vigor and all of these sorts of things. He's, he's carrying on the, the, you know, it's a blessing to have sons and to have that firstborn son is an example of that blessing. And if you don't have sons, you have no evidence of your vigor. And again, like Woody said, there, there is no one to carry on your legacy, to carry your name, to, to, to grant you that that um, evidence of existence beyond your own mortal life, right? And and, and think about Abram's the what what part of the a blessing to Abraham specifically addressed this? Do you remember? His seed would be like the grains of the sand on the sea, and like the stars in the sky. Exactly, and remember. What happened then um, when Hagar had Esau? Do you do you remember? Uh, not Ishmael? Esau, I mean Ishmael. When when Hagar had Ishmael, remember? Even though he was the firstborn son, he didn't get the blessing because he wasn't the son of promise. That's but he also, but he did also. I mean, God gave Hagar a blessing also for. Right. Her son, Ishmael, yes. that he also was the father of a great nation. He was mm -hmm. blessed, but he was, but the point I think in those stories, um, as you point out, is that God specifically wanted this to go down through Isaac. Now, Isaac was Sarai's firstborn son, but none of this ever counts from the female point of view. <laughs> you know, you're always right. looking at it from the male point of view. And Isaac was Abraham's well, second son. And yet God was very specific about how this blessing of descendants as the sand of the uh, sand of the earth and stars in the sky, that this blessing was going to be passing through Isaac in particular as the, as the miraculous um, 
conception. You know, he, he was conceived in Abraham and Sarai's old age. But he was the promise. He was the promised son. Mm -hmm. But he did, oh, God didn't leave Ishmael out in the cold. He, he said he would also be blessed with the nation. Um, and I often wonder if that's kind of the, the push and pull that we have in the, the Middle East. It absolutely is. I think that those people are the descendants of Ishmael. So they kind of have a jealousy towards Isaac's people. And Isaac definitely would have a jealousy against Ishmael also getting a blessing. There's a scene in um, the television series, The West Wing, where the president's wife, they're, they are quarantined, or not quarantined, we're in a quarantine now, right? So they're, they're locked in. Um, there's some kind of a, a possible attack or something, and so they're locked in. And there's a class full of um, high school students there. And so throughout the day, different people are coming into the room where the high school students are, and the high school students are asking questions. And Mrs. Bartlett, the president's wife in that one, gives a really good, they're, they ask that question. The kids ask that particular question is that, you know, why, why is Israel and, and these other nations, you know, why are they hate each other so much? And she goes back to the story of Isaac and Ishmael and explains it and how Sarah says, you know, this son of a slave woman is not going to inherit with my son and you know she explains the whole story and it's it's beautiful the, the explanation she gives is beautiful and the whole time we talk about the story i keep hearing her her narrative in, in that show but if you ever get a chance to look it up on youtube or something yeah, this well. explanation of <laughs> but i don't know but it's really good it's really good so why did you guys come up what did you guys come up with as the reason um, the firstborn were significant uh, in terms of executing judgment on the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh. Well, one of the things that I remember reading several years ago was that in, you know, apart from the idea that the firstborn son would be the, the next presumed Pharaoh of Egypt um, and Pharaoh was seen as a god, is that in Egyptian culture, it was the role of the firstborn son to, in essence, guarantee the immortality, the, the, the life after death of the father by performing the proper rites and sacrifices and making sure that the body was, was embalmed and mummified and, and guaranteeing that life after death for the father. And if the, the person whose role that was was killed before the father died that in essence was also cutting off the life of the father after death and the break of the continuation of the line mm -hmm. that links right back into what woody had said at the beginning you know even in the hebrew culture the the virility of the father Hi, was expressed in the son um it he was passing um, a part of himself and, and the the worst curse the biggest blessing was having descendants as the sand of the sea the worst curse in the bible in this culture is being wiped off the face of the earth and having no descendants left 
that is the ultimate curse in this culture. So um, it seems to me like we're dancing all around the word um, power. And think about, pardon? Sorry, that's what I was, that's where I was gonna go. That's the main thing we talked about was power and control. Absolutely. We talked about that on the first question um, when it asked about the gods of Egypt and then what was happening there. And we put, no, they weren't concerned with the people. The control was over the people of Egypt. It was all about control, mm -hmm. power. That's exactly right. You know, this whole thing is about power and who has power and who, um, I don't want to, I don't want to tell you what I think. What did you all think? Why did the Lord de declare that um, all the firstborn in Israel from now on belong to him? And we didn't get that far. <laughs> we said that it was because we're supposed to give him the first fruits anyway. And so the first fruits belong to God. That is a, that is true. I think that is one, one big reason. Uh, it's just like picking out the unblemished lamb, the best you've got, you know, and that we've seen that several times all the way through Genesis uh, examples of that. Um. Did you come up with, with any other reasons why the Lord would declare all the firstborn belong to him? We kind of ran out of time. Yeah. yeah. But, but somebody did mention that uh, they were for building the nation. So they, were, so they were giving their firstborns to God so that God could build a nation. Gotcha. I wonder if it relates to the idea of passing of power. I wonder if it is a very visceral reminder that we don't get to pass the power. That the power belongs to God. And that God chooses how it passes and to whom it passes. And in the study guide, I listed um, the firstborns and second, you know, and second borns, you know, who, who, for whom this crisscrossed, you know, and I forgot to put Ephraim and Manasseh on there. They're, they're another pair where it crisscrossed. The Lord is very much about um, wanting us to break out of our cultural um, insistence that we have the ability to pass anything in terms of power from one generation to another. It's not our right. That right belongs to the Lord. And I think that, that the killing of the firstborn in Egypt was directly uh, impacting their power base and what they perceived as their power base. And as you guys mentioned, uh, what they perceived as their guarantee into the afterlife. Um, and God is just Ooh, kind of taking all those future armies and stuff too. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. God is wow. taking the face of the Israelites and pulling it away from those gods and saying, no, 
you know, and then the Israelites look down and say, but it's us. We, okay, it's not them, but we have the power now. And God is about to lift their head up and say, no, <laughs> it, it's you and me. <laughs> it's us in a relationship. It's me doing this for you. You have to trust me. Don't keep taking the power back. Yeah. Something just occurred to me while we were chatting here and I was listening. And that is when God struck down the firstborns in Egypt, and we're talking about power, the firstborn tends to have a lot of leadership-type qualities in general. Um, they don't have someone to follow, to teach them. So they tend to have to figure things out themselves, and that makes a certain type of personality. And when you smite all that, you have a different situation that comes into play. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think that um, certainly the Lord is doing that at the, to the Egyptian gods. You know, he's making it very clear who's God, and it's not them, because they can't stop this. And he's, he's impacting their power base. But it is also, um, I think that, that that's why God made it for the Israelites, the sons and the animals. Because God is not now and never did and never will ask for the sacrifice of the sons. You know, he's, he's leaving their sons, but he's asking them to, you know, make a sacrifice on their behalf of something super valuable so that they understand these sons belong to God. But he is also making them actually sacrifice their firstborn animals for exactly the reason that you're, that you're laying out there, that, um, that this is, God is looking for a change of heart here. He's looking for a different world order, a different world view than what they had been raised in, in the ancient world and a different worldview than kind of what we've, perpetuated ourselves okay we're you know five minutes over time i'm sorry i ran over a little bit no that's great very informative though i mean there's a lot to think about in this and that's you know kind of i hope that that's what these breakout sessions always do for you is my goal is to give you questions that point you in a direction you may not have explored before i'm not mm -hmm. saying it's the right direction I'm just saying it's worth thinking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that we that, that we were talking about in our group that that probably is why we didn't get to the last question um, was this the the discomfort that we feel in reading this story about the killing of all the firstborn sons in Egypt. And, you know, yeah, you can understand it from the perspective of, of God, you know, smacking down Pharaoh and, you know, yeah, you and your people see you as a God, but I am God. Um, and we can see it in, in certain levels of the society or at a certain age of the firstborn son, like say, if the firstborn son was someone in his forties, that's one thing. But what about the young couple? who have only been married for less than a year. They just had their first baby who is maybe days old, their firstborn son. 
did they also lose that baby or was this another one of those exaggerations in the telling of the tale that um you know enhanced the storytelling around the campfire for all those years before it was written down and that it it makes a more powerful story if you say every single firstborn male in the land of egypt was killed rather than well the firstborn of the court and the ruling classes um were, that city. were killed because because in ancient egyptian culture the common people did not did not have the wherewithal to have their bodies mummified and therefore there was no thought of afterlife for them that was a position of privilege hmm. so well i have so, to say that i would i wish i wish i could give you a, a, a an answer that you want to hear but the actual <laughs> the actual answer is number one we don't know anything about age but it is actually in the record here that God said it would be the firstborn from the Pharaoh all the way down to the slave in the dungeon. Mm. Oh, and the prisoner too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Unless they sprinkled the blood over the door. And this is the kind of thing that, um, that people stumble over a lot because we don't want God to, we want God to be tame. We don't want God to be like this. And so, yes, the answer to your question is, is yes, this could be something that has been exaggerated in the storytelling. Absolutely. No question. Um, it also might not be. And um, I think that we are just beginning to get a glimpse of the hem of God's garment in a sense. We're just beginning to get a glimpse of how God sees us in relation to him. Not that we are not valuable, not that we are small and insignificant and unimportant. That's clearly not the message here. We're clearly extremely important, every last one of us. God cares about all of these little details. But God sees this from a much bigger perspective than we do. Much bigger. And in our understanding of what life is, we tend to focus on life being what we have in this physical body. But if that's what life is, and this is a cruel joke because how many people have lives trapped in bodies that are racked with pain, bodies that don't work, bodies that suffer in poverty, bodies that suffer abuse, bodies that die within hours of birth. That cannot be what life is. Life has to be eternal. Life has to be eternal for us to participate in it with God. And so this is the very first time we begin to see that principle in operation. Yeah. Yeah. 
One of the things that I take note of is the fact that God always gives us a way out as well. And I know it doesn't say this directly in the verses, but I believe that if an Egyptian family saw what the Israelites were doing and said, hey, why are you putting that blood over the doorpost? And an Israelite said to, my kitten is coming up in case you see anything or anything goes weird here. He, he, she may walk on the board. Um, if an Israelite or if an Egyptian family had said, what's going on? Why are you doing that? And they said, well, our God, the one who's been bringing all these plagues, said he's going to kill the firstborn of every family unless we do this. And that Egyptian family had gone and done the same thing and taken a firstborn lamb and had sacrificed it and to God and cooked it and ate it like they said to and put the blood over their doorpost, that the angel of death would have passed over them as well. And that's entirely that possible. I'm just wondering if that was the reason for the four-day wait. Maybe. Because they would have had to have picked that lamb four days ago. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, God, God provides salvation to everyone. And, you know, I, I have this discussion with my kids quite frequently because there's, they'll say like my um, youngest daughter's boyfriend or fiance is an atheist or an agnostic, maybe, I don't know. And she says, but he's such a good guy. I can't see how God would let him go to hell. And I'm like, it's really hard to fathom any of that, you know. And um, my former pastor believed that God actually, that Jesus would appear to somebody right at the moment of their death or just before they died and give them one last chance to accept him, even if they hadn't accepted him in their life. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not. I can't prove it one way or the other, but... I believe God always provides a way out, no matter who you are. I definitely and, believe in God's mercy. Always and, and press to us choices whether or not we're going to accept it. Yeah. So. Yeah. The, what the terms are, I think we can talk about. But but I do agree that God is always there, always merciful. But I also think we have to begin to take a different view of what life means, with respect. Yeah. If you have time for one last comment, your backpack helped me this week. Did it? It's something unrelated. You know, I do crafting, and I was in the Silhouette Design Store, and I saw this design that said it was real decorative. It was an orange with fall leaves, and it said, fall for Jesus. He never leaves, Hebrews 13, 5. And I said, surely the Bible does not say that. <laughs> oh, for Jesus, he never leaves. That's hogwash. So I cracked out my Bible and it mm -hmm. said, blah, 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 he never leaves. <laughs> so it did say he never leaves. It didn't say fall for Jesus. Exactly. But it did say he never leaves. That's funny. <laughs> That's so I bought the shape. <laughs> You say you bought it? I bought it. I bought the shape. It might come I, it. I might put it on my granddaughter's t-shirt. <laughs> but I had to check it. I was like, there's no way the Bible says this. I've got to check it. 
You guys kind are of hilarious. I'm, you're you're going to be dangerous now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've always been dangerous. I'm just going to be dangerous with a little knowledge. Julia's <laughs> dangerous anyway, right, Julia? Bye, y'all. Love you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.